Um, this morning, it's really good to have you with us. We're, we are starting a new series. Um, this is going to be about a 16-week series that we're going to talk about a lot of different stuff, actually, but I think it's going to be an incredibly engaging uh, series for all of us. So it's good to have you all. Those that are watching online, it's uh, great to have you join us this morning as well. Um, I would like to have you stand with me. We're going to read the text this morning. Though This series is going to be based in the Old Testament. I'm going to take a passage out of the New Testament and show you some of the things that we're going to be looking at. I think it should be quite interesting for us as well. Um, so this morning, we're going to, the text is taken from Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 1 to 10. And Paul, Paul wrote this book, this letter to Ephesus, and he said this beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the title of this series is Case Studies in the Old Testament, and today's the introductory uh, sermon for this. And as we begin this sermon, I want to kind of give you a scope of it a little bit, especially as it pertains to what we're looking at today. Um, we're, We're going to be looking at the odd and perplexing characters of the Old Testament, like Samson. Um, uh, There's several different characters when you begin to look at them. Gideon, the doubt that he had. Um, When you begin to look at those, I think you begin to realize they're oftentimes uh, rarely dealt with in in public settings. And the reason is, is that they don't fit our stereotypes for what we think Christianity is. They don't they're not neat. There's nothing convenient about them. But I, I believe that a close examination of it will begin to kind of deconstruct some of those stereotypes, some of those ideas that we've got in our mind. Um, to be quite honest with you, I think that many of us have concluded that Christianity is like an iron kind of mold, and it pushes you progressively into a frame of thinking and a form of conduct and action that causes many people to conclude that it, it's just really a stifling system. It's a system that will actually destroy any promise of authentic personhood because it, it's moving you towards, I think most Christians I think would agree with this, it's moving you towards being like Christ, which could look pretty strange for some of us. And hopefully by, by looking at this, we're going to be able to avoid a couple of the misconceptions that I think are prevailing in our culture. Um, The first one would be that freedom is actually discovered 
by a complete denial of absolute truth. In other words, if you don't affirm truth external to yourself, then no one can blame you for not pursuing it or not knowing it. If you affirm truth to be internal and subjective to you, then it's a system that is really your own convention. And therefore, it seems, I think, to the majority of people in the United States, it seems like that would be freedom. The second misconception that I think that we begin to see is that Christianity isn't a system that, that gives freedom. This misconception tells us that it actually takes, takes it away from us. As it pushes us into that stereotype, as it pushes us into that mold, it's like a cookie cutter when it comes down, it cuts off all the appendages of who we are as individuals. And like I said earlier, it causes us to lose hope that we ever could really be authentic. I don't think it takes very much more than just a trip to many different types of churches and you begin to realize that if, if you're tatted or you have piercings or if your hair isn't the right length, you suddenly begin to feel as if you are on the outside looking in. And I don't believe that that's what it was like when Jesus was on earth, but I think we're going to begin to see this in the Old Testament, that many of the people that God actually used were people that didn't fit at all the mold that we perceive Christianity to be. And so I want to start, and I want to start with a quote by Frederick Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was a, a fairly astonishing and brilliant philosopher. He concluded that atheism was the only consistent way to think of a world and the order of the world. And, and he kind of captured that first that first misconception that I talked about, because he, he wrote this. He said, You have your way, I have mine. Uh, I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, and the only way, it doesn't exist. And so he patently said, You basically gonna, you're going to have to do your own thing. If there was a transcendent standard or way that was out there that is right, then you could measure it, but there isn't. And so you're going to have to figure it out. And I think, unfortunately, that that's the conclusion that even many Christians are coming to, that that Christianity is actually going to take away any of the things that you find pleasing, any of the things that you would naturally want to do. Now, Emma Goldman was an atheist that wrote in the early 1900s, and she, she wrote a small piece called The Failure of Christianity, and she defined Christianity in, in The Failure of Christianity this way. Um, She said that it's the leveler of the human race, the breaker of man's will to dare and to do. And so this idea of the leveler of the human race is that it actually creates a, almost like a blade across a lawn, and it creates a uniform height, and nothing can can transcend it. She went on and she wrote this in the same article. She said, "'Much as I am opposed to every religion,' much as I think them an imposition upon and a crime against reason and progress, I, uh, I yet feel that no other religion has done so much harm or has helped so much in the enslavement of man as the religion of Christ. Verily, we need redemption from the slavery, the deadening weakness and the humiliating dependency of Christian morality. Those are strong words. I think many of us as Christians, we live kind of sheltered, from that kind of hostility. I believe over the next year, over the next several years, 
you're going to see not a rise or an increase in atheism in our society, but you're going to find it to be more vocal. Even over the past couple of weeks in the sermon series that I did over the holidays, many of you interacted with me and you, you shared with me that, that it seems as if people are becoming more and more overt. And it's not that the sides are, are growing. It's not that Christianity is just diminishing and atheism is growing. It's that the middle is going away. In other words, many of us that grew up in the Bible Belt or grew up in different parts of the country where it was socially unacceptable not to be a Christian, those are all changing. And what you're seeing is that people are willing to just be themselves. And this is where these issues are going to come out more and more, especially when you live in urban settings like Denver. And so as we look at these verses this morning, I want to show you that Paul addresses both of those misconceptions that I spoke about in the beginning. He, he first is going to deal with freedom and show us that freedom is more complex than you think. It's far more complicated than you realize. And secondly, he's going to show you that Jesus is more liberating than you think. And so this first point, when he, when he shows us in this first part of this text that freedom is more complex than you think, he, he hits a nerve because contrary to what we believe, freedom is not found in the absence of constraints, but in the midst of it. It's in the midst of understanding yourself that you begin to discern freedom. But in the very process of discovering who you are, you're by, by default realizing who you're not. And so as some things come into focus, other things fall away. It's a very interesting thing. Now, the Oxford Dictionary kind of leans a little bit the way that our society is beginning to see this when it defines freedom says that freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants. It's the ability for you to think as you want to. That's what freedom is. Now, if we go back to verses 1 to 3, this definition that emerges from what Paul is describing here, he says, you were once dead in, your trespass, in, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Now, <clears throat> that clause tells you that Paul is describing the lives of people that had become Christians before they were Christians. And he says, we were just like everyone. There was something about us that was like woven into the fabric of humanity. And it was dwelling there in us just like everyone else. And so, in one sense, Christians should be able to understand non-Christians really well. Now, I, I tend to believe, and this is one of the difficulties I have with organized religion and organized Christianity even, is that it tends to move us out of our lives. In other words, the greater the organization, the greater the structure, the greater propensity or proclivity that we have to actually move away from what we formerly were. Paul's defining it here. He says, this is what it was like. And so he's showing something that probably would have looked like freedom, but wasn't freedom at all. Now, the two things that I think that points here, that there, there's much here that I could, I could, we could spend a whole series just on these verses, I believe. But the two points that I want to lead out of this this morning is simply this. He shows us that the, there's a lack of freedom in freedom. In other words, what we think is freedom is oftentimes 
nothing more than captivity itself. The deadness that he describes here is quite different than we would typically conclude, as it describes, it, it's described as the result of being controlled by the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, he's showing that before we were Christians, we were actually emulators. We were walking just like the rest of the world, just like the prince of the power of the air, which is code word for the devil. And he says, you were actually a bunch of robots. And the things that you loved, the things that you sought, were actually causing you to just walk lockstep like a bunch of lemmings. And you were just all on the same path. And that's what we once were. And so he starts by actually showing that freedom, in freedom there's actually a lack of freedom. And then secondly... He begins to show that <clears throat> he shows us that there's a passion that's in bondage. Now, this is a big thing. I see it over and over again in my counseling that many of us have concluded that if you, if you become really serious about something, then it must be good. Whatever your passion is that could lead you to, f- to freedom. But in this description, it's interesting because he shows us that passion can actually blind us to the reality of bondage. You can be passionately engaged in something that is taking you away from freedom, not towards it. Now, Romans chapter 1 is an interesting chapter. Paul wrote that as well. And he talks about the, the way that we actually begin to see things in the creation that are so glorious to us that we begin to mistake them for the creator himself. In other words, our love and affection for the creation supplants the worship that actually belongs to the Creator. Those are powerful affections. When he writes to the Colossians, in Colossians 1, he actually says that it's when you were hostile in mind and alienated is when you were made alive. And so it's a mistake to conclude that everything that appears to be freedom is freedom, and it's a mistake to conclude that all passion is is going to be found in freedom because passion can be found in bondage. And so this begins to open this up just a bit and it begins to show us that there's a complexity to freedom that oftentimes defies our first glance, our first investigation. That brings me to the second point. And he shows in the balance of these verses that Jesus is more liberating than you actually think he is, far more. Just as freedom is, is more complex than you think, Jesus brings a liberation to life that is completely different than most people anticipate. I think that's why conversion to Christianity has to go far beyond just an intellectual persuasion. Now, there's three parts of this that I'm going to kind of lead out. The first is that Jesus offers freedom to those that are helpless. We see that in verse 4 and 5 when he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead... In our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And, <clears throat> and so he's showing something that you have people that are actually hopelessly engaged in something. They're locked into to almost like a tractor beam in which there's no deviation. There was alignment in your affections in the sense that we, we actually embrace things that we wanted. I, I can go back to years in which I was in the church and wasn't a Christian. And the focus that I had in my life was, was astounding. 
Um, I, I can remember the two men that I worked for when I was in seminary. Um, both of them were non-Christians. And the focus they had, I oftentimes wrote in my journal that it, it shamed most of us as Christians. The, the alignment of their life was astounding to me. I, I would go in, they, they'd let me work any, any hours that I wanted so I could make my seminary schedule work. And I would go in sometimes at four, three or four in the morning and they would be there. I would, I would work late at night and they would always be there. There, were, there. there was such an intense pursuit that held them in such an amazing way. But when, what Paul is saying, when it was like that for you when you were dead... That's when life came. When you were completely hopeless of anything changing, that's when it changed. And he, he's getting at something that I think most of us as Christians don't realize for quite some time. In other words, the longer you're a Christian, the more that you can look back to the time before you were a Christian and you can see how hopeless you were. In other words, your hopelessness doesn't diminish it increases. And it just forces you to realize how intoxicated you were before then. And it, it, for many of us, it seems almost like coming out of a, a horrible addiction in which an addict has no capacity to see that she's destroying her whole life. The fabric of all of her relationships is just passing away. And she can't break from that spell of that insistence that this drug, this, this addiction of whatever type it is, is going to lead her to heaven. It's going to bring her to a place of complete satisfaction and rest. And so when Paul describes this liberation that comes from the gospel, he's describing it as something that we understand far, far more in, in, in reverting back or far more... In, in retrospect, as we begin to think of what it was like, we can see that it was more hopeless than we possibly, it was far more desperate than we possibly imagined. Brings us to the second part of what it, Paul shows is that Jesus is more liberating than you think, that Jesus offers freedom to the helpless. And in verse 8 and 9, he says, For, it was by grace that we've been saved, through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Those are emphatic words. In other words, in other words he's saying, it had absolutely nothing to do with you. This life that we have found, it was not because you were smarter. It was not because you were more intelligent. It wasn't because of the color of your skin or who your parents were. It wasn't because of where you went to school or the vocation you took or whether your business succeeded or failure. It had nothing to do with that because it was favor imparted to you. And your helplessness in it, again, just like I described before, your helplessness in it is astounding. The longer that you believe the gospel, the more that you can see that your ineptitude is, was amazing to be remedied. The fact that you had no hope of rescue and suddenly all things have changed. Those who accept the freedom that Jesus offers realize that the difference isn't anything that came from them. And so he offers freedom to the, help, to the hopeless. He offers freedom to the helpless. And then lastly, Paul shows us in verse 10 that 
This freedom that Jesus offers, it's discovered in the constraints of your identity and purpose. Now, this is the kicker. This is the one that I think shows us why we miss it so easily. The complexity of freedom and the freedom that Jesus offers, they actually converge in the realization that the problem was is that you didn't have enough constraint. The reason that you sought freedom, even when you thought you were free, is that you had not enough definition or not enough constraint in your life. In verse 10, he says it this way. He says, for we are his workmanship. Now he's talking about a group of Christians that have actually become something from this helpless deadness to now a state in which their lives are becoming productive and there's something emanating from their life. As Jesus said, you'll be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. There's something that's changing now. And he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I want to use the illustration of of a young woman who discovers she has an amazing talent for music. And let's say she discovers it in the third grade. And suddenly now, her, the desire that she had for soccer, though it's not entirely gone, the desire that she had for playing with her friends, though it's not entirely gone, it begins like an eclipse to lose its shine. And the more that she discovers her talent and her genius for music, the more she practices, the more she studies, the more she prepares. And that practice is beginning to constrain her from all of those other loves. All of those other engagements now have to pay for that to emerge, for her genius in music to really fully demonstrate itself. Now, you could look at this another way. The number one resolution that Americans make for, well, there's actually two that kind of, kind of come up, they kind of ebb and flow every year. The first, most popular resolution is to quit smoking. The second one is to what? Lose weight. Now, The moment that you begin to take on a diet, what have you done? Well, it it usually goes like this. You you get out of bed, you get out of the shower, and you look at yourself in the mirror, and you you don't like what you see. You don't like the handles that are hanging over your pants, and you don't like the fact that your pants don't fit. You don't like the fact that someone bought you pants that they thought would fit, that don't even come close to fitting. And so you make a decision. But what is that decision? It's so innocuous that we oftentimes fail to see it. What you've done is actually create a vision for a better you, a less fat you. And so by spending some money, by committing yourself to a regimen of eating some things and staying away and not eating other things, you actually persist in sustaining that vision whether it's a number that comes up on the scale or whether it's getting into those genes, you've decided that there's something that's better than you are presently. And you constrain yourself to get it. You actually begin to commit yourself to the doing of some things and the not doing of other things. You give up your freedom to be free. To become that person, you actually become a slave. You see, we get this entirely. One of the most difficult things that I had throughout seminary is this love-hate thing that I had for my professors. 
They, every semester that I would go in and they would give those syllab- the, the syllabus out, the, the syllabi and the collect, would throw me into a, they call it shock for the first two weeks of classes. And I hated those men. And I'm thinking, if I hate them so much, why am I paying so much money for these classes? Because you see, paying the money for the classes was a volitional choice that I made in submitting myself to what they required of me was a giving away of almost my entire life. It was brutal. It was the worst three years of my life. But there was a betterment that came from it. And you see, these are all the same principles. And we all know that. You go out and you buy a car and you sign a piece of paper and you're saying, for the next 60 months, I'm going to make that payment. And I know good and well that three months from now, that car is just going to be a car. But for now, it's captivating me to the point that I can't imagine my life to be complete if I'm not driving this car. When we buy a house, when we go into marriage, all of it's exactly the same way. And so what Paul is showing is that this liberty that Jesus brings is actually, the reason it slips under our radar is because it's different than we imagined. But it's practically everything that we've ever done. Now one of the most consistent assertions of Christianity, one of its most basic assertions, is that we are each image bearers. Whether you're a Christian or not Christian, all Christians believe that you actually bear the image of God. All Christians believe that your existence in this world isn't just shit happens. It wasn't just an accident that you came into the world, but you belong here. Paul said it this way in Acts 17 and verse 26, that God determined the boundary of your inhabitation and the point in time in which you would live. And there's something very intentional and deliberate about you. And Christians affirm that, not just about Christians, but about all men and all women. And it's one of the most basic assertions that we have is that there is this incredible value that you have because you're exactly who you're supposed to be. Now, Herman Bavig, a Dutch Reformed theologian, he wrote in 1901, he, re- he released a book called The Doctrine of God. And he tied the creation, the existence of things as you experience them, he tied them to the intellect of God because he said the mind of God determined the decree. God didn't see something and then just go home and create it. He didn't borrow it from anything. And so he said, if God's thoughts precede his creative fiat, if he thinks about what he's making before he makes it, then you have to conclude that when the creator thinks of you, the creature, he's thinking his own thinking. He's committed himself to bring forth a life in space and time that has to be. That's a basic assertion. And so for Paul here to to say we are his workmanship, he's referring to God, we're created in Christ Jesus, there's the work of what Jesus did on the cross, but he said we're his workmanship created to do things that he prepared for us to do before there was an us. There are things. And so this liberating, this liberation that comes from Jesus is something that is truly profound because it's connecting you. It's disconnecting you from the absence of freedom and it's connecting you to true identity. 
Now, I want you to listen to the way Tim Keller describes this. This is taken from, from his book, uh, The Reason for God. Belief in the Age of Skepticism is a sub- subtitle. And he writes it this way. He said, In many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. The liberating restrictions, those that fit the reality of our nature and the world, produce greater power and scope for our abilities and a deeper joy and fulfillment. Experimentation, risk, and making mistakes bring growth only if over time. They show us our limits as well as our abilities. If we only grow intellectually, vocationally, and physically through judicious constraints, why would it not also be true for spiritual and moral growth? Instead of insisting on freedom to create spiritual reality, shouldn't we be seeking to discover it and disciplining ourselves to live according to it? Those are profound words. In an age in which everybody's saying, we, we should just figure it out. We should just do our own thing. Maybe that is your greatest captivity. To deny that it can be discerned and understood at all. Now I know that there has to be many of you, if, you're, if you haven't been trying to connect this, then I'm going to do it for you. There has to be some of you that are already thinking, what has this got to do with studying the likes of Samson or Gideon or Ahithophel? I believe that what we're going to see throughout this series is that Christianity actually can prevent you from succumbing to those, those two misconceptions that I spoke of in the beginning. It can actually direct you to see that, that Christianity doesn't enslave a person to an iron mold. It actually frees her to be herself. It actually insists that she understands who she is, who her parents are, who are not her parents, who her children are, who are not her children. It forces her to see which car out of a thousand cars in the car lot is the one that's hers. It forces her to realize her place and time and act a certain way towards a certain man and no other. You see, there's identity. And what Christianity forges inside of us is not an iron mold that makes us just like everyone else. It is a liberating force that allows us to discover who we are uniquely from anyone that has ever lived in the past, is living now, or will live in the future. There's no one like you. No one quite like you. The second thing that it will actually do in studying these characters, I think, it's going to show you that Christianity actually deconstructs stereotypes. It doesn't create them. It actually has always been a system that can transcend any culture. Islam doesn't do that. If you find boroughs of, of, of Muslims, whether it's, whether it's in London or in the Middle East, they cook the same, they dress the same, they treat each other the same. And there's uniformity that that has never been binding like that to Christianity. Dinesh D'Souza in his book, What is So Great About Christianity, he has an amazing description of how the liberty of Christianity has been what has transcended cultural distinctives. And it's been doing it from the first century. From the time that Jesus began to lead the first Jews into faith in the gospel, 
It has always transcended that. And the difficulty they had in the first century is to say, how could it do this for a Gentile? How could it do it for someone that isn't a child of Israel? And it jumped that. And once it did that, within 400 years, it became the mandatory religion of the Roman Empire. It's an amazing change. And so there's something about discovering Christianity that deconstructs stereotypes and it emboldens us to discover who we really are. What are your things? Have the resolutions that you've made in this past week put you in alignment to who you really are? Or it's just a stubborn insistence that you're going to be like someone else? There's a difficulty of being a part of L2. And it's oftentimes, I've had hundreds of people tell me that I used to use the phrase a lot more than I do recently, that I used to tell people, we don't want your life. I don't say that as much as I used to, and it's not because I don't believe it. It's because most of you don't understand what I'm saying. When I say I don't, we don't want your life is that we're not trying to just create a, like a, an attractional Petri dish that is going to get as many people as possible into this building, though we want to grow. Hopefully this year we will grow by 20%. And we believe that we've assembled a staff and we actually have a roadmap that is really a practical way to get there. But the primary thing that we're trying to do is to get you to embrace your life, to love yourself so much that no church can mesmerize you with shell games to get you to give your life up and to collapse it into a whole bunch of activities inside the church. Does that Now, the moment that I tell people this, they, they immediately say, Well, you're telling me I can't have any Christian friends. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that you you need to begin to focus and be intentional about putting yourself in an intelligent engagement within the city and watch how God uses who you are and what you do in this city. These ten verses actually capture an amazing breadth of Christianity. And over the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at some characters that are going to deconstruct and destroy, literally, your view of a uniform faith, one that just lops off all your individuality. It's one that I think is going to be remarkable. I hope you'll commit yourself to bearing the course. All right, let me take your questions and I'll be done. Aren't the good works mentioned in verse 10 universal common? Some people would believe that to say, okay, we are actually being put into a uniform trough and there's a convergence of all Christian effort into just a few distinct things. I don't believe that. I'd go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 to show it and Romans chapter 12 actually shows it as well. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 7, Paul said, To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, that verse is a watershed for many Christians. And the reason is is that it's saying that the Spirit is actually granting to each Christian a capacity to manifest God to the world. In other words, you're supposed to be Jesus in the world. And the Spirit actually is determining that. Now, the, the last clause for the common good is what many people have concluded to say, well, the context Paul is talking in is actually talking about the church, and he's talking about the gift of the church. 
But I don't believe that gives you license to say that your giftedness belongs in here. And see, I grew up believing that. And so whenever you were looking to get plugged in, it had to be into the church. And so when you begin to look at what Jesus said in the first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And so the good works that I believe that Paul is talking about and describing in verse 10, for some of you, they belong right here in the church. Much in, the majority of what I do happens here. But the majority of your life isn't here. And for you to take the gospel into those parts of your life and those good works, they manifest themselves everywhere across this whole city. And see, I think that's the exponential influence of a church that's truly missional. So no, I don't believe that those are just common works. I don't think that those are works that are universal to all of us. Is accepting faith in verse 8 not a work? It would be a work if you had the ability to perceive it yourself. Now this is a watershed that, that throughout church history has been described as the difference between Arminian and Calvinistic theology. Arminianism basically said that Jesus died for everybody. God loves every single person on the earth and he wants everybody to be saved. And therefore, the distinction between a woman in heaven and a woman in hell isn't God. It's her. She had enough sense to come out of the rain and to believe. And because of that, she was given the ability to go to heaven. You see, that would be works. That would be the belief in which you can put your faith and it distinguishes you. Now, I always try to put things into little phrases in my mind so that I can remember them. That system basically says your believing leads to your regeneration or salvation. Now, I believe that what we see in these verses is that your regeneration led to your believing. When you were dead and helpless and hopeless, that's when God made you alive. And you started believing. And so the believing is the evidence of your regeneration, not the cause of it. And so when Paul says it's not of works, there's nothing that you did so that none of you can boast. If your believing was what distinguished you, you would have reason to boast. And most Christians do. And I don't believe it's legitimate. I don't believe Paul did either. He says it twice, actually in the first, uh, first chapter of 1 Corinthians as well. So, there's a last question. In light of quotes like Goldman's, is the correct response to agree? These words are big, and it takes, I know it gets awkward when I read it slow, but it, it takes a long time for my eye to go that far. Um, in light of the quotes like Goldman, is the correct responses to agree that they hold truthfulness, but counter that they condemn a less than full understanding of the gospel? That's an intelligent question. Um, I received an email this week from a man who has uh, a, a young man that works in his business. And he manifested himself in this, the, the employee did recently, by wearing a, a, a satanic symbol to show his rebellion against Christianity. And he asked me how he should handle it. And I said, number one, you need to be really wise. If you're, if you're going to engage that employee, do it in another location at a different time, not at work. And that would just be to navigate some of the judicial issues today. But I encouraged him 
to, to actually try to do something that I've, that I've started to do in my, my counseling and coaching. When, when, I, when I coach someone that is not a Christian, I'll typically ask him, what is your experience with Christianity? How do you understand it? And as I've told you in the past, I have never had a non-Christian or an atheist even one time give me a compelling explanation of Christianity. In other words, what they give me is some paltry thing that's easy to kick to the curb. And I'll usually affirm it with them. In fact, it goes something like this. Well, I just believe that Christianity is this iron mold and we lose, we lose our identity in it. And I'll tell them, if that's what it was, I wouldn't believe it either. And that really kind of provokes a strange response. It's like, what do you mean you wouldn't believe it? I said, that's not it. That's not it at all. In other words, if you'll give me a couple of sessions, I'll show you what it is. And then you can decide whether you reject it. And so there's nothing wrong with being able to say, this is how people see this. And at the same time, be able to say, that's valid. But what they're looking at is not. And it gives us understanding, it gives us patience, and it gives us an ability to sustain our influence in that situation rather than just get offended and blow it away, as many Christians would. Because what happens with most of us is that we don't know how to handle it, and because it's, it's so challenging to us, we usually either say nothing and withdraw, or we really get upset, and our stupid things happen, like our lips stick to our teeth because we get so nervous, and we, don't, we can't give it an answer. And hopefully you're willing to learn how to answer those things. And so I would just tell you a good rule of thumb is that every time you run into a rejection of Christianity, try to investigate it more. Try to figure out what they really believe it to be. And I think, like me, you'll find out that the majority of what people have rejected isn't Christianity at all. I read the entire article by Goldman, The Failure of Christianity, And there were parts of it I I could totally relate to. I could totally conclude with her why she rejected Christianity. But there were parts of it that I could see were complete straw men, completely false. Those are some very good questions for today. All right, I'm going to uh, ask the band to come up. I'm going to pray, and we're going to prepare for our communion in the close of our service. Uh, Please pray with me. Father, I would ask that there would be a a moment in time here where we would be able to to kind of just draw ourselves back and to think about what it is that we consider freedom to be because I really believe it's far more complicated than most of us have imagined. And I also ask that there might be a, a moment in time right now where we could really ask ourselves whether we understand how liberating the gospel and how liberating Jesus really is to those of us that are Christians. Do our lives really manifest that? Or would the lives of our family and friends that are observing our faith cause cause them to conclude that this actually is a system that takes away your freedom? It doesn't give it to you. I believe one of the prevailing, perhaps the most succinct statement that the church, Jesus' church, needs to hear today is the very words that Pharaoh spoke that Moses spoke to Pharaoh, let my people go. Let them go that they might serve me. And so, Father, I pray that over the next few months, as we would look at these various characters, you would allow us to, to understand who they were and to understand just how diverse and unique 
the work of the gospel is in the human heart for both men, men and women as well. So I ask your blessings upon us. As we prepare for communion this morning, I ask that you would give us a, a few moments of sober examination and assessment that would cause us to understand the parts of our lives that need to be reformed and turned into a better direction. Help us to be grateful for those parts of our life that are actually full of your blessing and your goodness to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to take this very seriously. And this would be a time in which we would be able to worship you with hearts that are full. We commit these moments to you, for we pray and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.